This morning we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and while you're turning there, may I just say once again that it is a wonderful joy to my heart to be able to stand before you and open up the Word of God and to immerse you in its glorious truths. And I hope your hearts are prepared for the seeds that will be placed within them. For indeed, there is no greater act of worship. And I hope you hear this. Biblically, we understand that there is no greater act of worship than to humble ourselves before the word of God when it is taught, when it is preached. In fact, that is the number one priority in the Christian life, according to Jesus in Luke chapter 10 and verse 42. So now we have we have this privilege here this morning to open up the word and to see what the spirit of God has for us today. And this morning in the text before us in in Matthew chapter 11, the first six verses, we are going to learn much about overcoming doubt and discouragement. Now, before we look at the text, may I just say that routinely I encounter Christians who are plagued with the double edged broadsword of doubt and discouragement. It's easy to doubt God because of difficulties that come into your life. It's easy to become discouraged as a Christian. And sometimes Christians will be serving the Lord faithfully and suddenly their life falls apart. Suddenly some form of persecution hits them or some relationship suddenly begins to deteriorate. Maybe they lose their job or they have some unexpected diagnosis. And it sends them reeling in confusion and they begin to ask the question, God, what are you up to now? What am I going to do? And you all have been there. If you haven't, you will. And those types of calamities in our life tend to. Make us very vulnerable to doubting the goodness of God and becoming discouraged. And we begin to ask questions in our heart like this. God, why me? God, you seem so indifferent. Where's all this stuff about a loving heavenly father? What about those promises, Lord, where you say that you hear the cries of the righteous? And yet, Lord, somehow in my life, I wonder when you're going to rescue me. Why? Why are the wicked continuing to prosper? And the righteous suffer. God, I don't know how I need to respond. And in times like that, we need perspective, do we not? We need to know what God would have us think and what he would have us do. Because it's at times like that, we can even begin to ask, I wonder if I've believed a lie. I wonder if Jesus is really who he claims to be. Well, friends, you might find comfort in the fact that Even great and faithful saints down through history have struggled with these very issues. Indeed, the great John the Baptist was asking some of these very questions in the text that we have before us. And may I remind you that he was not a spiritual lightweight. In fact, in Matthew 11, 11, 
Jesus himself said of John the Baptist, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And yet, dear friends, the faithful forerunner of the Messiah was languishing in a filthy prison, facing imminent death. And now he is bewildered, wondering, what is Jesus up to? And like any human being, even those that know Christ and remain incarcerated in the flesh, he begins to ask questions because he is at some level having some misgivings about God and who Jesus is and what he's up to. Misgivings begin to haunt his mind. Confusion begins to sweep over his soul. And like all of us, the dense fog of discouragement begins to cloud his spiritual sight and begins to envelop him with the dampness of despair. And in today's text, we're going to see what he did and what Jesus did. And frankly, I believe we will glean much from this fascinating narrative about how to overcome doubt and discouragement when bad things happen to those that love the Lord. Follow along as I read Matthew chapter 11, the first six verses. And it came about that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. This text reveals to us, dear friends, that doubt and discouragement will only be dispelled by affirming and experiencing the truth concerning three things. Let me give them to you and then we will look at them this morning. You must understand, number one, the deity of Jesus Christ. Secondly, you must understand the revelation of Christ. And thirdly, we must experience the confirmation that comes from Christ. Now, let me give you the context this morning. Jesus, as you know, has just finished instructing the 12 apostles, and he is now sending them out on their first missionary journey. They're going out into the Galilee, and now for several weeks, Jesus will depart and go his own way, and he will be teaching and preaching in their cities, according to verse 1. So the apostles are scattering in several different directions, and Jesus is now left to himself to preach and to teach. But John the Baptist, that great wilderness preacher who had enjoyed such, such a dynamic and, and powerful ministry for some 18 months, the greatest man to have ever lived up to that point, according to what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 11, this great man is now in prison. Herod Antipas, who was the governor of Galilee at that time, had seduced his brother Philip's wife, 
Her name was Herodias. Into being his lover and even his wife. So Herod divorces his wife and he marries Herodias. And John the Baptist had boldly and publicly confronted Herod with this blatant immorality and it had infuriated Herod. So Herod threw him into an old dungeon fortress of Macarus, which is an extremely hot and desolate place on the northeastern end of the Dead Sea. In fact, he would have killed John the Baptist, according to Matthew 14, 5. But he was afraid of the multitudes. Now, can you imagine what must have been going through John the Baptist's mind? A man who, according to the scriptures, had been filled with the spirit of God, even in his mother's womb. A dedicated, faithful servant of God. Who had boldly made way for the coming Messiah. In John 3 and verse 28, he said, you yourselves bear witness of me that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And he went on to say in verses 30 through 31 that he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. And now the same man is in prison. He was the one who said in John 1, 26, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me. The thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then when the Messiah appeared, John the Baptist joyfully exclaimed in John 1:29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And now, after all that. He finds himself neglected and abandoned and alone, wasting away in a dungeon for taking a stand for righteousness, for standing up for the glory of God, for being the forerunner of the Messiah. Where's the justice in this, he must have asked. After all, I thought the Messiah was was going to bring in the kingdom. In fact, I, I had just recently preached in Matthew chapter 3. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to, un, to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. I just preached that, but where's the judgment? And instead, I'm the one in prison. After all, the psalmist had prophesied in Psalm 58 and verse 11. Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Where's the judgment? When is he going to avenge the righteous? Where is his love and his compassion? What have I done to deserve this? Have I believed a lie? Beloved, what must we do when we find ourselves in similar dungeons in life? Well, let's notice what John the Baptist did in his doubt and discouragement. 
the first thing he had to do is reevaluate and reconfirm the bedrock of his faith. And that is the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. Notice what he said in verses two and three or what the text says. Now, when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? In other words, Jesus said to his disciples that no doubt came to visit him in the dungeon. You need to go ask Jesus, are you really who we think you are? I, I, I have heard of your works, but I've only heard of you using your power to heal and to save sinners. But I've yet to see you display your power to judge the wicked. Are you really who you say you are? You know, folks, even the most dedicated saint can have their faith shaken. In fact, on several occasions, you might recall in the New Testament that Jesus rebuked the disciples. He used phrases like, oh, you have little faith and how long will you doubt? Dear friends, it is part of our humanness to struggle with misgivings about the goodness of God. It doesn't excuse it, but it's certainly a part of who we are. But it is also a part of our sanctification to rise above it. Trials are inevitable. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And certainly history proves that statement to be true. Story after story, we can recall. I, I think of Jeremiah served the Lord for 40 years and also ended up in a pit. I think of all of those Christians, many of my ancestors in Scotland, when in within a few days of Queen Mary's reign, it, it was said that almost all the prisons in England were filled with Christians. In fact, some said that the prisons became Christian schools and churches. You see, friends, we must always fix our gaze upon the eternal unless we find ourselves fixated upon the temporal. We must never lose sight of the big picture of God and his glory and that he is up to things that we cannot even begin to comprehend. And that his perfect plan of redemption is clicking along absolutely perfectly. So John in anguish of soul. Wonders if Jesus is really the Messiah, Christ, the sovereign ruler over all. Are you really the Lord of hosts, the creator and sustainer of the universe in whom we can fully trust? Can you pull that out, please? That's what's humming. Dear Christian, may I put it to you this way? When you find yourself doubting and when you find yourself discouraged, you must come to this place in your mind and you must immediately have resolved within your mind and within your heart who Christ really is. For if Christ is not who he claims to be, we are fools and we have no hope. We labor in vain. If Christ is not who he says he is, we suffer in vain. We will even die in vain, and certainly we have no hope of the resurrection. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen: If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Beloved, when doubt and discouragement 
come into our minds, we tend to doubt the goodness of God. And when that happens, now please hear this, we have lost sight of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's why we must go back to that very basic understanding of who Jesus is. And, and when that happens, we must do all we can to begin to, to embrace him in sweet communion and to fellowship with him and to seek his face and to hear his voice through his word and to do all that we possibly can to behold his miraculous works that are all around us and to get lost once again in the wonder of the love of Christ and to submit to his lordship, come what may. Said simply, when doubt and discouragement come, we've got to all get closer to Jesus. Something that John needed to do as he was languishing in this dungeon. And then when that happens, we will very quickly be encouraged in our faith. Now, you must remember, John the Baptist had had had, had very little close contact with Jesus. He had his disciples and he was functioning many times in different areas. But especially now that he's in prison, he has no contact with the Lord. And friends, think of this. Whenever you cut yourself off willingly or sometimes when you can't help it, as in the case of John the Baptist, whenever you cut yourself off from the contact of the Lord and from the fellowship with the Lord, that is certainly a recipe for doubt and for discouragement. In fact, over the years, as I've worked with many, many hundreds of people that struggle with depression, and I'm not talking about a depression whose etiology is found in some physiological type of, 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 of issue, but people that are depressed because of some loss in their life or, or other issues, which, which causes it to be a spiritual issue. But the common denominator with those kind of people is it will always be will always be I've yet to find it different. It will always be they have a low view of a low view of God and they do not have a sweet fellowship with the Lord Jesus. It's just not there. Oh, they may be religious. But they do not rush into his presence and enjoy a sweet communion that can only be explained by those who do. So anyway, John sends word by his disciples. The, the learners that that were following him. And he says, go ask Jesus if he is the expected one. Now, this is an interesting phrase. It was a common phrase in that day to designate the Messiah. And John is basically saying, I've, I, I've got to know here because Jesus, if you are who I am, I, I, I'm sure that you are. Then I'm, I'm going to suffer without complaint because I trust you and I know that you will deliver me at the appointed time. If you are who you say you are and who I'm at least I think I'm convinced that you are, then I know that you are God and that I am not God and I will trust your goodness and I will trust in your timing. Now, you might say, well, even if he was convinced that Jesus was the Christ, how could he be so assured of Messiah's deliverance of his life? Well, dear friends, the answer is quite simple. The Holy Spirit had revealed that to him through the Old Testament and by faith he believed it. You see, he had no written revelation apart from the Old Testament. Think about that. But certainly that was sufficient for his faith. Think of the metaphors and the titles and the names of Christ that we have in the Old Testament. Let me give you but a few. 
In Exodus 3, 4, he is the great I am. In Exodus 6, 3, in Isaiah 40, in verse 3, he is Jehovah or Yahweh. In Jeremiah 23, 6, he is Jehovah, our righteousness. In Psalm 2, he is the anointed one. And in that text, in verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. He is also called the banner in Isaiah 11:10, the banner from the root of Jesse, who will stand before the peoples. And that text there says that the nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. You see, John knew of these great prophecies and he's wondering, when's it going to happen? But yet he understood if Messiah was, if Jesus was indeed the Messiah, that eventually someday what he said would come about. We could go on in Zechariah 3 8. We see that he is called the branch. And then that text we read, listen, O high priest Joshua, I am going to bring my servant the branch, God says. And in Isaiah 11, verse 1, we read, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. John undoubtedly knew Isaiah 9, 6, where we read that a child would someday be born and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus, if, if, if you are the Messiah, then this is going to happen someday. Isaiah 42, God speaks through the prophet concerning Jesus and says, here is my servant whom I uphold. And he calls him my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. John is waiting for that. And we could go on. He's called the king of Zion, king over the whole earth, commander of the Lord's army, commander of the peoples, desired of all the nations. In Psalm 89, 27, he's called the firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. John's waiting for this. Psalm 16, 10, he's the holy one of God. Isaiah 7, he's called Emmanuel. In Malachi 3, he's the messenger of the covenant. In Job 19, in Isaiah 59, he's the redeemer. In Malachi 3, he's the refiner. In Malachi 4, he's called the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in, its wing, in his wings. And in Psalm 89, 27, he's called the most exalted of the kings of the earth. And John is saying, I must know that I am not rotting in this dungeon for the wrong reason. Jesus, are you the expected one? Beloved, this is the question that must be resolved in every heart. If you ever expect to persevere in suffering. And now, as New Testament saints, how much more confidence should we have as we now look back some 2,000 years and see the truth of Jesus, things that John the Baptist could not have seen? And I know some of you are struggling, even in this room today, and you've heard me say before, and I think it bears repeating, that you need to go to such texts as, as Isaiah 50 and verse 10. There we read, Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of His servant? but walks in darkness and has no light. In other words, who among you loves the Lord and, and, and you want to be obedient to him, but you really have no light? In other words, you, 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 you are without hope right now. You are in despair because of some bewildering, tragic situation. What do you do? The text goes on to say, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Well, what does that mean? Well, the name of the Lord that ineffable tetragrammaton 
those four letters that are too wondrous to even speak from the lips. The, the word Yahweh, the name of the Lord, is the term that encompasses all of his attributes. And so the point is, when you're in a dark place and you don't know which way to turn, you come before God and say, oh, God, thank you that even in your name, I can see all of your glorious attributes. And think of not only the Old Testament names that I mentioned, and I mentioned but a few, but think of those that we have in the New Testament. There we read that he is our advocate. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the bread of life. He is the chief shepherd, the cornerstone, our deliverer, our eternal life. He's called the exact representation of God's being, the faithful and true witness, the firstborn over creation. He's called the friend of sinners, the gift of God, God, very God, heir of all things, the hope of glory. He is the image of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, Lord God Almighty, yet a man of sorrows. He is our master. He is our mediator. He is our savior. He is our Lord. He's called the radiance of the glory of God. He is the righteous judge, the son of the most high, the sovereign Lord. Now, folks, when you understand that in the dungeon, when you understand who Jesus is, then at that point, you can trust and know for certain that, God, whatever you bring my way, I will suffer with great joy because I know who my God is. I know whom I have believed. And I know that you will be faithful to redeem me in your time. And if you don't understand that, then you will be absolutely consumed with doubt and with discouragement. Dear friends, what a glorious hope there is in Christ Jesus. And now we have the revelation of the person and the work of Christ in the New Testament. Undeniable proofs of his deity all through the New Testament. That's why Paul would say in Romans 8:31, when he reflected upon the sanctifying power and the justifying power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul reflected upon him confidently and joyfully exclaimed, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is Against us, rhetorical question, no one, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And then with such glorious insight into the person and the work of Christ, Paul goes on later to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? He says, no, and then he goes on and he says, but in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So John sends his friends to confirm once again that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. But friends, he also needed something else. He needed the revelation from Christ as to what he was really up to. Back up to verse two, it says, now, when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. As I thought about this, I began to understand, you know, it's one thing to hear things secondhand, but it's altogether something else to see it with your own eyes and to hear it with your own ears. And like many before him, he did not understand the full scope of Jesus ministry of salvation. In fact, in 1 Peter 1, 10, 
we are reminded that the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You see, the prophets didn't understand all of this. Neither did John. In fact, we will see that John the Baptist died and he never fully understood everything. Moreover, he was confused as to why Jesus was not living up to what he considered to be the messianic promises. He was confused. You know, Jesus, what are you up to? It seems to be contradictory to the messianic kingdom. <laughs> Rome is still in power. The Jews are still living in sin and I'm in a dungeon. You know, like all Jews of that day, they were convinced that the messianic prophecies concerning the glorious millennial kingdom would immediately be fulfilled when the Messiah would come and that their suffering would cease. You begin to understand the questioning in John's mind. In Psalm 89, 14, the psalmist reminds us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. That's what they were looking for. In Isaiah 24 and verse 23 they were promised that the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. That wasn't happening. By the way, dear friends, it will happen when he comes again his second time. In Amos 9:11, it says in that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins and build it as it used to be. And in Zechariah 9:10 it says he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And many, many more such promises. In fact, after his resurrection, the people still were confident that he was about to establish the millennial kingdom, his earthly kingdom. Remember in Acts 1:6 they came to him and said, "Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel?" So, folks, John the Baptist and many others of that day did not understand that these glorious prophecies concerning the earthly reign of the Messiah were going to be fulfilled in a day yet future. That Jesus had to come this first time to be judged and the second time he would come as the judge. That he had to come the first time as the lamb and he would come the second time as the lion. That he had to come the first time in humility and that he would come the second time in glory. And it's important for us to remember that many people today struggle with doubt and discouragement because they are likewise confused about God's plan for the ages. You know, there are many that think the church is supposed to win all of the world to Christ and that we're actually going to do all of that and that we're going to hand him the kingdom. And they're baffled because as they look around, the world is getting worse and worse, not better and better. Well, you know, the reason they think that is they don't understand the scriptures. Others don't like certain doctrines that they find in Scripture because those doctrines do not meet with their preconceived ideas about how God is supposed to rule and reign. So, therefore, they come along and they rewrite Scripture. The cults are notorious for doing this very thing. We even see it in evangelical circles. Well, I don't understand the sovereignty of God and I don't like it, so I'm going to rewrite it. And we call that Arminianism. Or I don't like that to talk about wrath and judgment and how God's going to judge the wicked in hell. So we're going to rewrite that one, too. And then other Christians claim promises God never made. And many people have I heard 
that have planted their seed faith money, expecting a harvest of wealth. And it never happens. The only guy that's rich is the guy standing up before them. Or they've been deceived into believing that there is physical healing in the atonement in the present age. And yet everyone is still deteriorating in health and we all eventually die. Or others come to Jesus convinced that he's going to heal their marriage or they're going to be more successful. They're going to have more money or they're going to make more touchdowns or hit more home runs. All of these gross distortions of the gospel. And how sad it is to watch naive and deceived Christians being seduced by false teachers into trusting God for things that he never promised. Well, the Lord had just recently told the apostles, you will recall, the truth. And that is, men, if you follow me, you're going to be like sheep among wolves. You've got to beware of men, for they will deliver you up into the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. Following, may, following me may cost you your family. It may even cost you your life. You're going to be hated by all on account of my name. You've got to be willing to deny yourself, literally to hate your former self. You've got to be willing to take up a cross. And he who does not take up a cross and follow me, follow after me is not worthy of me. In other words, it may cost you your life. Well, that's the truth of what it means to follow Christ. But many people distort that. And certainly John the Baptist was confused about certain issues with respect to the kingdom and he needed clarification. And that only comes through revelation, revelation that is contained within the canon of Scripture. And dear friends, knowing this, Jesus does something remarkable here. He does something that is so generous and so gracious as the Lord just loves John and loves all of us and understands how his faithful servant is now doubt, doubting and discouraging. And this brings us to the third point that we need the very thing that John the Baptist needed. And that is confirmation from Jesus Christ, encouragement from Christ. Notice verses four and five. And Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You see, friends, Jesus now lovingly provides irrefutable evidence of his messiahship to encourage and to bring comfort to John's aching soul. In fact, in Luke's gospel, in Luke seven, that text tells us that Jesus responded immediately to John's disciples when they asked, are you the expected one? And in verses 20 through 21, he says, uh, the text says that at that very time, in other words, the moment they asked that, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many who were blind. I mean, folks, can you imagine that? A mass and sudden healing. Imagine the effect. I mean, here's where we have a legitimate reason to start dancing and singing and praising God. People praising the Lord and weeping with joy. What an incredible moment that must have been. And what an incredible encouragement that must have been to those disciples who were also kind of wondering. Because, again, they're looking for the kingdom and the kingdom's not here. Jesus, are you really who you say you are? And now they can go back and say, John, you're not going to believe what we saw. We've got to tell you what we saw. But folks, I want you to listen to this. I want you to notice that God did not change John's circumstances. He changed his perspective. Beloved, please hear this. 
God is most glorified when he leads us through the valley of death, not when he delivers us from it. And indeed, John was soon delivered from that dreadful valley when the wicked Herodias demanded that he be beheaded. Friends, may I encourage all of you, having been there myself many times, that the presence of God is more real in one crucible of grace than in a thousand pleasant pastures. It is in the context of suffering that the reality of who the Savior is sweeps over your soul with a reality that can only be explained by those who have been there. How much easier it would be to suddenly be relieved from any suffering. But all the Lord knows that we need to experience His power in the context of it. What a joy it is to experience His presence in the midst of suffering. Think of that old hymn, Out of the Scottish Psalter, back in the 1800s, art thou afraid? And here's what it says. Why pourst thou thine anxious plant, despairing of relief? As if the Lord o'erlooked thy cause and did not heed thy grief. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that firm remains on high the everlasting throne of him who formed the earth and sky? And these suffering saints went on to say, Art thou afraid his power shall fail when comes thy evil day and can all and can an all creating arm grow weary or decay supreme in wisdom as in power the rock of ages stands though him thou canst not see nor trace thy the working of his hands he gives the conquest to the weak supports the fainting heart And courage in the evil hour, his heavenly aids impart. Mere human power shall fast decay and youthful vigor cease. But they who wait upon the Lord in strength shall still increase. So Jesus displayed his power to John's disciples. Certainly, the Lord displays his power to us in different ways. He does it primarily through his word and the community of his people. I think of the way Jesus did that through the confused or to the confused and doubting disciples on the Emmaus Road. You remember that story back in Luke 24? Jesus rebuked them for being slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And then the text says that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all of the scriptures. And then the text says that he suddenly vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, oh, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Oh, dear child of God, may I encourage you when all seems lost, you must rush into the presence of the Lord, understanding who he is and listen to his voice in scripture and humble yourself before the word of God. And then the truths of of Psalm 19 will be a reality for you where the psalmist says in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. But notice the final words that Jesus uses to confirm his love and his faithfulness to his servants. The end of verse six, he says, and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me, 
Stumbling, a term scandalizo in Greek, it means to ensnare. It was used to describe a snare or trapping of an animal. And it came to be used as a term meaning to cause someone to stumble or to be a stumbling block or even to give offense to someone. And here Jesus is using it metaphorically to gently warn John and his disciples and and frankly all of us to not allow the misconceptions of the world about who Jesus is and what he's up to, his incomprehensible plan of redemption, to not allow all of the naysayers and all of the confusing things that you hear out there to ensnare them in doubt and discouragement. Beloved, remember the secret things belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29. We've got to learn, as Paul did, to be content in whatever circumstance he places us. And beloved, doubting the goodness of God can be disastrous to the Christian life. James warns us that the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. James 1.6 And even for those who are confused about Scripture and don't understand doctrine and have a lot of bad doctrine, they will be, according to Ephesians 4, verse 14, children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Well, I want to close this morning with a powerful example of another great hero of the faith who endured tremendous persecution and difficulties in his life. Difficulties that seldom would seem fair from a human perspective. Nonetheless, he trusted in the Lord and faithfully served him. I've been reading the biography of William Carey, a great missionary to India back in the 1800s. And this biography, I'd recommend all of you read it. It's a powerful, powerful book written by his great grandson, who, by the way, is also dead now. And you read in that book about the tireless evangelism of William Carey, how he was able to lead more than 600 genuine and tested conversions to Christ, people that were genuine and truly born again in the scope of about 19 years. And also you read that in about a 30-year period, he translated and printed some 212,000 items in 40 different languages, languages that nobody even knew existed. In fact, a lot of people thought he was making them up. Bibles, testaments, books, tracts. And as you read his story, you see very quickly and by his own testimony that he was a convinced Calvinist. Carey and his colleagues embraced the glorious doctrines of grace with great awe and love. And with God's sovereignty as the bedrock of his faith, he was able to persevere enormous trials, the death of family members and and diseases and persecution and every imaginable heartbreak. But one tragedy stood out to me that, that just really reeled me back in my seat when I was reading it. And that was a fire that destroyed the majority of his years of fastidious translation and writing. Can you imagine that happening? Here's what he wrote to his niece. A dreadful loss befell the mission last night. Our printing office was totally destroyed by fire and all its property. Nothing was saved but the presses. This is a heavy blow as it will stop our printing the scriptures for a long time. 
Twelve months' hard labor will not reinstate us, not to mention loss of property, manuscripts, etc., which we shall scarcely ever surmount. But I wish to be still and know that the Lord is God and to bow to His will in everything. He will no doubt bring good out of this evil and make it promote His interests. But at present, the providence is exceeding dark. What a marvelous example of faith in our sovereign God. And it's interesting, as I went on to read, you know what his text was that next Sunday as he stood before the people to preach? Be still and know that I am God. And his outline was twofold. Number one, he spoke about God's right to dispose of us as he pleases. And number two, man's duty to acquiesce to his will. And of that sermon, it was written, and I quote, He led them on that day into a most heartening remembrance of God's principles and purpose and promises and providence. Beloved, this is exactly what we must do to overcome doubt and discouragement. Remember the testimony of John the Baptist who struggled with these very issues. Remember that we must understand clearly the deity of Christ, who Jesus really is. We must understand the revealed Word of God and how He has presented Himself to us in His great plan of redemption. And then thirdly, we must have a confirmation from Christ that He indeed is ministering to us and He will minister to us in our time of need through the power of His Spirit. But may I close with this thought. Do not wait until you are in the midst of the crucible to learn these things. Learn them before so that you will have a reservoir of truth from which to tap into when you find yourself in the furnace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this glorious text and the power that it has to speak to our hearts. May these truths find a place in our hearts. And in our day of trial, may by the power of your spirit, we reach back into the recesses of our minds and our souls and pull out these glorious concepts and relax in them for your glory and for our good. I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.